Okay. You are... Amy. And... Dave. And we know each other... From our masters. And today I wanted you to talk about that night at the Working Men's Club. Right, that was my fault. I'd heard about this eco art night Mm -hmm. and I decided to invite these two to come along. Yeah. No, I didn't really know what to expect, to be honest. I think I just said yes. No, I was expecting a club night. No, same. Instead of it being like a club setup, there was a lot of like performance art pieces dotted Mm -hmm. around the venue. We were sitting on the floor, cross-legged like primary school children, watching a man make out with an aloe vera plant. For a long time. time. Oh, and he was like really sucking it. The main event was upstairs which wasn't at all like a club it was more like a gig venue right? At one point these four people came on stage so there were these two kind of goddesses. I remember them as like sexy woodland nymphs kind of covered in glitter like very wings yeah. Yeah. They were both holding leads and on the ends of leads were these two men with gimp masks and dressed in suits. Crawling. Crawling Crawling on all fours. fours. These goddesses represented nature and they were asking the audience members to come up on stage and get revenge on the corporate world. To shame them. Shame them for their corporate greed, Mm -hmm. like degrade them. When they passed the microphone round. It was a little awkward. It was just awkward. (laughs) They'd get people to come on stage and then they'd be like, you're so evil, you're so uh, bad. But someone who would be like initially kind of enthusiastic <laughs> would dry up and yeah. not really know yeah. what to they, say. They would clam up. Mm-hmm. Then they kind of struck gold with this one guy who really found his rhythm. He was not happy. No, so he kind of got the microphone, he found a lot to say, he got the crowd really going, mm-hmm. but then it kept escalating and he told this really sad story. Yeah, it took quite a dark turn, didn't it? He said about his dad getting sort of asbestos poisoning. And as he got off the stage, you saw the corporate pigs starting to like, shuffle. <laughs> Shuffling, like, slightly away. He then started trying to actually kick them Yeah. and oh, the God. two playing the woodland nymphs had to get in the way yeah. and say, you can't touch them. Sorry, you can't actually, like, attack um, our gimps. Yeah. Our gimp actors. Um, and, um, he got escorted off the stage. Yeah, eventually he got escorted off the stage. Because it suddenly became very tense and uncomfortable. They were trying to find a way to close the piece. Yeah, yeah and they did the best thing that they could possibly have done, is just make out on stage <laughs> in front of everyone. But it just it, didn't stop. Yeah, it didn't stop. So they were just making out for, like, an uncomfortably long period of time. I think that might yeah. have been when we made our exit also, mm, yeah. because it really to have become a little unbearable. We then just left and got bagels at Brick Lane. The perfect way to round off it was. extraordinary evening. Just felt kind of, I mean, we obviously care about, I mean, we were doing this full time, we care about this we stuff. We care about this, we all work in it now. But I think I just turned up and I felt out of place. Mm, yeah. Most people, if they went along to that, consider everyone there to be an absolute basket case. <laughs> Can you because say that? Honestly, can yeah, I say that? Case. I think I basket okay. is a nice way of putting it. Yeah. Uh, it's Same. a hippy dippy, yeah. like eco eco, <laughs> all the things yeah. that the environmental movement gets criticised for. Yeah, tofu yeah. eating, wokarate. So yeah, that was the eco art night at Bethnal Green Working Men's Club. It might be an extreme example. The environmental movement isn't all woodland nymphs and kink anti-capitalist performance. But still, there was something about that evening that felt indicative of its worst traits. Painfully earnest, deliberately, unashamedly niche. Like Amy said, most people would walk in there and think, they're basket cases. It's preaching to the converted, and even the converted are confused. And all that cringy pantomime stuff with the heavy-handed metaphors, evil corporate pigs, 
is almost like they're doing a parody of a hippie eco-art night. I mean, people power versus corporate greed. It's a bit cliched. But then, that is the thing about cliches. They're always the victim of their own success. They try to neatly encapsulate the truth, but they do it so neatly that they get overused. They might have a logical core, but after a while, we overlook it. And before you know it, you can say it over and over again, and you can't see how true it is anymore. And that's a problem. My name is Tilly Robinson, and you're listening to The Water We Swim In, a seven-part miniseries that explores what system change really means. Each episode investigates a story that helps us understand the way our society's been designed, so we can see the invisible forces leading us towards the climate crisis. Because in order to know where you're going, you first need to know where you stand and how you got there. Last week, we looked at the fact that the public is losing the commons to privatisation and the ideology behind it. Today, we're talking about what would happen if we tried to change things and what this says about the state of our democracy. Also to come, hippies, a surprisingly intriguing court case and a plan gone awry. Part one, an inconvenient democracy. Extinction Rebellion, or XR, You'll have heard of them, I have no doubt. They kind of dominate the imagination when you think about the environmental movement. And how could they not? They're the first global grassroots movement to achieve the kind of disruption they did. It's it's for everybody's future. If we don't fight now, we won't have a future. In April 2019, they occupied five major sites in central London, grinding it to a halt. They used civil disobedience tactics to disrupt on a scale that hadn't been done before, or at least not in the environmental movement. Over a thousand people were arrested. And it forced eyes onto them and the cause they were protesting for. Action on climate change. It ultimately led to the UK government declaring a climate emergency in Parliament. But it also led to a reputation. To some of the people forced to pay attention, people who'd had to walk around the protest or people turning on their TV and watching clips on the news, they were distracted from the demands by who was making them. Because if we're being honest, XR does kind of look like a bunch of hippies yo-yoing in between having fun and being hysterical. I mean, to the untrained eye, or just any eye, it does look like a lot of white people with dreadlocks, harem pants, tatty leggings, the smell of weed in the air. In this clip, a busker is singing about Mother Nature. And a few protesters are dancing around with abandon in front of him. But their eyes closed, they're twirling their arms in the air and they're kind of hopping from one foot to the other. And activists that have hit the news for protesting, they're always called things like swampy or laser or jelly tot, which are actual names. Obviously, though, the main problem isn't their names or their look, it's their rhetoric. Good morning, Britain. They often have environmental protesters on for interviews. It's pretty much the same setup repeated. Protester wants to raise awareness on an issue. Presenter wants to debate their tactics and popularity. They clash. 
And it can be frustrating to watch, especially if you're on board with what they're protesting for, but you feel like they're not doing a great job at representing it. Protesters have been criticised for risking not only their lives, but the lives of the Formula One drivers after storming the Silverstone track during the British Grand Prix yesterday. When you think of the great well, protest movements and the civil disobedience of the last hundred years, what do you learn from their campaigns? Well, as you, as you will no, well know, they all took disruptive action. Like, we wouldn't be in the place that we are in society if those groups hadn't taken the action that they took. What your audience need to understand... But the other thing was that they actually were quite clever at getting public opinion on their side. And I that's wonder how that's going. That's not true, Ed, is it? Like, the, these groups were some of the most unpopular groups of their time. What your audience need to understand is that we're being systematically lied to. The government has no intention of dealing with this crisis. They are under the behest of big business and corporate interests. And corporate media like mm. yourselves uh, are, are also uh, complicit with this. OK. This protest is called James. Listen to how he comes across. He's not answering the question. He's just telling us what we need to understand. And he's becoming upset. You, listen to do that you understand think... the consequences of what happens when we burn that oil? Like, this is not some hypothetical. It's happening now. Tell How many what, people have to die before what, you take this seriously? Tell us what genocidal means. It means what, the what is, complete annihilation of our way of life. No, it doesn't. It means the no, complete collapse no. of our civilization. We are seeing crops failing do you know, worldwide do you know right what the word, now. Do you know what we're going to see a billion means? climate refugees on the move by 2050. What do you think our society is going to look like? He's upset, and rightly so. The climate crisis is terrifying. But still, do you hear what he's saying, or do you just take in the fact that he's yelling over the interviewer? And actually, what he's saying, that we're being systematically lied to and the government is under the behest of big business and corporate interests and they have no intention of dealing with the crisis, in terms of tone, it's actually not that far off having a man in a suit crawling around in a pig mask. Their rhetoric kind of suffers from the same problem as the pantomime at the eco-art event. If there's any truth to what they're saying, then that truth is hidden behind the way they're saying it. It comes across as reductive, childish, hysterical, and it makes it hard for us to sympathise with what they're actually doing. And this matters because their protesting methods require patience from the general public. Extinction Rebellion have kind of taken a back seat recently. It's been insulate Britain and just stop oil making headlines. Their tactics are civil disobedience and disruption, so that often means blocking roads, climbing bridges, climbing oil tankers, spray-painting things, and it's disrupting people's lives and causing real frustration. That's assault, right? So you can't do that. Now, if you do that, that is a crime. It's one thing being stuck in traffic on the M5 for a protest you agree with, and it's an entirely different thing if you think the people who are protesting have no grip on reality. And a lot of people do feel that way. Here's another clip from a Good Morning Britain interview. It's fashion journalist Lowry Turner giving her opinion on the disruptions. The problem I have is, is, is this idea that the one group of people have decided that they are the ones to save the world. And there's a certain po-faced, incredibly irritated... I get it coming off in waves towards me here, like, how dare you question us because we know what's right. I'm going to glue my hand to some tarmac and then I'm going to be a martyr and I'm going to be a good person, while the rest of us can't get on with our day. I mean, We're trying to uphold the science. The science is being ignored. 
the academics are being ignored. We live in a democracy, yes. and it's not the right of one small group of people to tell everybody else how to live. Go through it's democratic not... process. Talk to your MP, get the get a government elected who is doing what you want them to do. Don't just simply think, well, we can change but I everything. I have to say, Larry, if that was going to work, it would have worked by now. And I think win... that there is a point to they say. They have to win hearts and minds, and they're not. And that's the crux of it, isn't it? For a lot of people, like Lowry, there's this feeling that somehow civil disobedience is cheating. It's a demand, and we live in a democracy. If you want something changed, go through the democratic process. Start a campaign, raise awareness, garner support, write to your MP, protest in the appropriate place in front of Parliament. But the thing is, they have tried that. Here's James again. People ask, why don't you write petitions? Why don't you go outside Parliament? We did. The thing is, you didn't hear about it because the media doesn't cover it. So this is what we have to do to get to talk to you guys, to get the message out there, to get people to care. Even if you don't agree with James's particular tactics, or you think he's a hysterical bonkers fanatic, you might still stop and think, does he have a point? And if you did stop and think for a second, you might ask yourself, how do you feel about our democratic process? Do you feel it's solid that if there was something really wrong happening, something you cared deeply about and wanted to fix, that you'd be able to go to our government and stop it? Like our democracy is functioning, that our processes work? Or does it sometimes feel like something's a bit broken? If, in that moment of reflection, you had a creeping doubt about our democracy and our political institutions, that maybe they're not fair and functioning, then you're not alone. A new report from Cambridge University has found that dissatisfaction with democracy has reached an all-time global high, with Westminster-style democracies seeing dissatisfaction double since the 90s. And I decided I wanted to talk to someone who could tell me why this might be. Right, so uh, actually, first of all, would you mind introducing yourself, saying your name and what you do, because that's great to have that as a soundbite. I'm Wendy Brown, and I'm currently the UPS Professor of Social Science at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, recently retired from the University of California at Berkeley, where I taught political theory. Wendy Brown has pretty much spent her whole life studying, writing books about, and teaching political theory. She's written a lot of incredibly clever and complex books, and all I can say is, they're not breezy bedtime reading. Her prolific penmanship is beaten only, maybe, by her partner, Judith Butler, also an esteemed academic, philosopher and gender theorist. Imagine those dinner party conversations over a bottle of wine. When I ask Wendy why we're losing faith in democracy, her answer takes us back to our dominant ideology, neoliberalism. In the last episode, we learned how it came onto the scene in the 70s, with both Thatcher and Reagan rolling out policies based on Hayek's theories, and how it's been in the driving seat pretty much ever since, embedding itself as the West's primary way of thinking. And its central belief? That the market should be left to guide the economy without intervention. It should be free to do its thing unimpeded. That's why it's called a free market ideology. But something we didn't cover is, what is the market? Like, what is it actually, other than this strangely conceptual, important thing? Right, OK, hold on to your hats, because we're going to dive into some deep theory. But bear with me, because once you understand it, everything becomes a lot clearer. OK, so the market's kind of like this mix of all the systems and institutions and procedures and infrastructures that all interconnect to allow the exchange of goods and services, which we know is what the economy is all about. 
But because of all of its internal logic and laws, it kind of does it by itself. You know, supply and demand and innovation, they all interconnect into a sort of spontaneous natural order that assigns value to things. And this is why the neoliberals are sure that the market can solve problems in a way that humans just can't rival. The last thing they want is for the government to interfere in the market or in the economy by implementing things like tax rebates and regulations and subsidies. Because the government will just inevitably get it wrong. They're going to stifle the market's brilliance and they'll end up restricting our freedom. And that's all classic neoliberal logic. You know, it's what they're known for. But what's less known is what's become apparent to Wendy over her years of research. That the proponents of neoliberalism didn't even like the idea of us, the democratic majority, interfering with the market. Why? Well, when the democratic majority is heard, then the likelihood is that they'll want to enact policies that work for the good of the majority. It's kind of in the name. And that means that they're going to want to limit inequality, which might mean they'll end up building a social democracy. And that is not what the neoliberals are about. In fact, it's their worst nightmare. They understood social democracy was... Socialism was practically inevitable once you enfranchise everybody. Mm. Because that's what the people would want. They were wrong to want it. They didn't understand their own interests. They didn't understand that they would lose their freedom and lose their robust economy and be ruled by a bunch of idiots. But nonetheless, that demand would be inevitable. And they knew they had to figure out how to prevent it. So the challenge was, how do you retain some modest version of democracy and even some facade of democracy while neutering it of that capacity. What happened was really clever. They disparaged and attacked the political and framed the political sphere as something that we definitely wouldn't want, an interfering, incompetent, corrupt government that only wants to squeeze the taxpayer dry, a government that both has too much control over your life and fails to adequately represent you. Big government, they call it. Listen to this snippet from Reagan's inaugural address in 1981. The economic ills we suffer have come upon us over several decades. They will go away because we, as Americans, have the capacity now, as we've had in the past, to do whatever needs to be done to preserve this last and greatest bastion of freedom. In this present crisis, Government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Government is not the solution. Government is the problem. This repeated rhetoric over time has permeated the public consciousness. It's framed how we feel about the political. And nowhere is the effectiveness of this narrative more clearly demonstrated than in Trump's presidency. In 2016, Wisconsin voted to fire this corrupt political establishment. And you elected an outsider as president who is finally putting America first. And if I don't sound like a typical Washington politician, it's because I'm not a politician. It's one of the reasons I was elected. I was a politician, I probably wouldn't have been elected, right? Trump's support came largely from the fact that he wasn't a politician. 
He was a businessman. And he was the ultimate neoliberal. He, more than any politician so far, saw the presidency as a corporate opportunity. Exposure was his whole goal, and winning, an unexpected outcome, turned into an opportunity to merge his global brand with the US government. Never before has there been a president who treated the White House, literally the centre of the public sphere, as a private corporation, unashamedly using the highest authority in the country to the advantage of his family's business opportunities. But the way that he presented himself struck a chord with a lot of people. I mean, why not let a businessman take a stab at running the country? Politicians have done nothing for us. Years of rhetoric and cultural framing around the government versus business had primed us for this exact moment. And this strategic devaluing, this prolonged attack on the political, it's had an effect. The most interesting part of that report from Cambridge University wasn't the polls. It was the fact that in the conclusion they state that the growing dissatisfaction is not because citizens' expectations are excessive or unrealistic, but because the democratic institutions are falling short of the outcomes that matter most for their legitimacy, like responsiveness to public concerns or raising the living standards for the majority of society. Our political institutions are falling short. And that's partly because we privatise so many of our services and spaces that the government does literally have less capacity to help us. I mean, it's not like they can affect our water or our energy or our train ticket prices. Those belong to private companies now. So, in turn, we have less faith in the idea that they can actually address the issues we care about and we engage less. The political sphere has been stripped right down. So our democracy has been thinned, at least in part due to the neoliberal project, the ideological belief that we should protect the free market from government interference. What does that mean for our well-being and the environment? Because, as we know from previous episodes, the market doesn't recognise nature as having any value and our economic model doesn't take into account the boundaries of the Earth. So what happens now? Part 2. The most unfree market ever conceived. I'm just approaching and it's an amazing street on the, on the lead-up. There's sort of tiny little ancient-looking shops uh, called, like, the wig shop um, and tiny little pubs. And the back of the Royal Courts of Justice is kind of like a brick and natural slate stripey um, Hogwarts. We're back in the tail end of 2021, a very bright blue December morning, and I'm rushing to try and get to the Royal Courts of Justice so I can learn about a court case which is about to play out. So the star of the show uh, is really a young actress called Michaela Loach, uh, who is, I believe, a medical student. And she's a big following on Instagram and does amazing climate activism. And I think she's the sort of face of it, along with two other claimants, uh, Jeremy and uh, Karen, or Karin, I'm not quite sure how it's pronounced. I have to get run over. Oh, shit haven't even had my coffee this morning um so this is a bit of a tall ask i mentioned the just stop oil movement earlier their objective is to simply just stop oil but not existing oil because that would be chaos no it's to stop issuing new uk oil licenses they get a lot of flack but actually this is the exact same thing that the international energy agency wants the international energy agency has announced some serious official advice 
If the world wants to meet our target of net zero by 2050, no new project should be issued. In fact, if we want to be within a 50% chance of staying within that all-important 1.5 degrees, we need to actively retire existing fossil fuel infrastructure, let alone opening new fields. And we talked briefly about the UK's North Sea oil in the last episode, how it could have been a goldmine for public wealth, but Thatcher sold it off to a load of oil companies. Well, there was a lot of oil in those North Sea beds. But we've extracted most of the good stuff by now, so what's left is oil that's A, harder to get, and B, worse for the environment, like heavy crude oil. So, given we're pretty committed to reaching net zero, it would be a terrible idea to open any new oil fields anyway. Except there's this new oil field, a massive natural fossil fuel reservoir under the seabed just northwest of the Scottish Shetland Islands. And it's called the Cambo Oil Field. It contains about 800 million barrels of heavy crude oil, which is a lot of money. And the market obviously says, yeah, make those profits, plunder those commons. And the government, who controls the licensing of these oil fields through the Oil and Gas Authority, the OGA, has this policy in place called MER. This is the last acronym, I promise. MER stands for Maximum Economic Recovery Strategy. It basically means that they are legally required to extract every last drop from the North Sea if it's economically advantageous to the country. If it's drilled, the first phase of it, only about 170 million barrels, would be the same as operating 18 new coal power stations for a year. So, a terrible idea and absolutely not in line with our net zero targets. But it is in line with the maximum economic recovery strategy, so that wins out. Generally speaking, the public don't usually pay attention to what's happening in the North Sea, and new licences are issued without scrutiny. But this time, some people did notice, and they didn't like it. So they started a campaign, Stop Cambo. And they did all the things they were supposed to do. They contacted MPs, they delivered a letter to Number 10, they raised awareness, they whipped up a pretty impressive social media outcry, they organised rallies, and they even locked themselves to statues splattered in oil. But the OGA didn't budge. The field was going ahead. So Stock Cambo decided to create a splinter group to go the superficial route, to take the government to court. And so here I was on the 8th of December, arriving at the Royal Courts of Justice to try and watch the case unfold. When I got there, a small crowd had gathered in support, holding banners, chatting excitedly. And just before they headed in, I managed to grab Jeremy and Michaela, donning a beautiful pink suit, her long hair and braids. You're being pulled in yeah. <laughs> so many directions. Just, how are you feeling? Are you, are you excited? A little bit anxious, not going to lie. Very excited, though. Like, I think it's been a long, long, long time in the making. Like, even before this was a public thing that we talked about, we were working on this secretly for a while. So yeah. it feels really exciting, a bit scary that this is actually happening today. This policy basically means that oil and gas companies are, like, legally required to extract as much oil and gas as possible. Um, so they're legally required to take as much out. And we know that that's what's causing the climate crisis. So it's yeah. completely incompatible with yeah. the aims that we're doing. There are really two last resorts. One is taking to the streets in direct action uh, and the other last resort is litigation and uh, we're basically forced into both of those at the moment. I'd been rushing along because I'd hoped to get into the courtroom and watch it all play out but despite the Royal Courts of Justice usually being open to press and public they decided to keep it closed today for some reason. One of the organisers of the campaign did say he would send over live updates of each argument made though so I found a prep around the corner, got a coffee and waited. And what came through surprised me. 
Okay, so court cases, although interesting in theory, are in practice very long with lots of technical speak, so I'm going to try and reduce it to its core movements. Now, what I assume will be the setup is that the claimant's lawyer, our guy, assuming you're anti-Cambo, is David Wolf, which is a great name, so I'll refer to him as QC Wolf from now on. QC Wolf is going to say, listen, I get that we could get a lot of bang for our buck from Cambo, and it's basically a legal requirement because of this mer thing, but it doesn't fit with our climate goals, and those are more important, and also what you're democratically required to uphold. And then the government lawyer, Kate Galifant, so let's call her QC Kate, will say something like, no, honestly, it won't be that bad, and the money we get from it will be really important, so, you know. And then we'll see who wins. But that's not what happens. So, everyone settles down, and QC Wolf kicks off the proceedings. He starts off by outlining Murr and making it abundantly clear that the strategy is designed to benefit the UK and why that's important. Guys, he says, Murr has the UK public in its best interests, or something like that, but longer because he's a lawyer. And he spends a good amount of time doing this as well, which, in my opinion, is kind of a weird approach to praise the benefits of Murr if your whole case rests on successfully undermining it. He does then read a bit of the strategy document out loud, which says, OK, we're required to both maximise economic benefit from drilling oil and help the UK meet its net zero targets. OK, so here we go, I think. I'm ready for QC Wolf to hit them with the one-two punch of those things are incompatible. But he doesn't do that. He starts talking about tax, which I don't know about you, but to me is a pretty strong indicator that things are about to get boring. So I'm sitting at my table in Pret, readying myself for things to get technical and convoluted, when QC Wolf makes the most interesting point he's made all morning. He says, OK, so if the whole point of drilling the North Sea is its economic viability, then why are we giving public money to these fossil fuel companies? Huh. That is odd. Apparently our government has been gifting fossil fuel companies public money in the form of subsidies. And it's been doing it a lot. Quick aside, you probably know how tax works, but just a refresher before we dive into this. When we make money, we give a portion of it to the government in the form of tax. And that means that the government gets lots of money and uses it to run the country and give us services that we need for free, like the NHS. It's like we're all putting a bit in for the collective good. And companies pay tax too. The more money they make, the more tax they should pay. And fossil fuel companies make a lot of money, so they should be paying quite a lot of tax. But QC Wolf says they're not for some reason. In fact, they pay so little tax that Norway gets around $15 of tax per barrel of oil, and we get less than two. And not only that, but we're giving a lot of the money they do pay back to them in the form of tax rebates. And these public grants of money, these subsidies, are essentially a gift. And as a country, we're very generous, apparently, giving more in subsidies to fossil fuel companies than any EU country. I was watching all these stats come through, and all I could think was, this is weird. Why are we foregoing all this money that they owe us? And suddenly, my understanding of the whole case clicks into place. QC Wolf is here to say, this is weird. Murr exists to benefit the UK economically, right? And that's why the government is saying we should drill. But QC Wolf points out, Murr doesn't take into account tax or subsidies, and it should, because as soon as you do, you see that drilling in the North Sea isn't economically viable, 
In fact, the sensible economic decision would be to not do it. This is their whole argument. Our claimants aren't saying that Murr is bonkers given climate change. They're arguing that it just doesn't make any sense. Full stop. QCK then takes to the floor and makes the point that these things are complicated and the government have to strike a delicate balance between making the whole thing profitable for us as a country and enticing the companies to come and drill our oil. Yes, Wolf says, but we do have the most profitable jurisdiction in the world for large offshore oil and gas projects, which is probably overdoing it, enticing-wise. He then lays out that between 2015 and 2019, the government paid so much to BP in tax rebates and subsidies that we ended up giving them 675 million more than they gave us. So their tax payments are minus 675 million pounds. And Canadian Natural Resources, another company, they were minus nearly 600 million. And ExxonMobil was minus about 450 million. And Shell was minus about 400 million. In 2015, the government actually lost money on North Sea oil, and that's taking profits from actually selling the oil into account. I think the point he's making is that that delicate balance that QC Kate was referring to may have tipped somewhat. And then QC Kate fires back that the benefits that the oil and gas industry brings to the UK are broader than just tax. They bring other good things like employment and stuff. And ultimately, she lays out her central argument. Listen. It's the OGA that should make this decision, not some random environmental claimants. The OGA, they're the oil and gas guys, they're the expert regulator, and it's complicated, so just leave it to them. Although, during this argument, she does also let slip that when scoping out an oil field, the OGA actually doesn't distinguish how much of the economic value of the project is going to us and how much is going to the company. It makes sense now why QC Wolf was taking so much time at the beginning emphasising that Murr was a strategy designed to benefit us, the UK. It was so that he could illustrate, that's not what it's doing. Just include tax. QC Wolf brings it home with a simple request. We're just asking you to include all of the pertinent figures when making sure something's economically viable. So I left the cafe mulling over the whole case. It was admittedly more interesting than I'd expected, partly because it had given me a new conundrum. I mean, obviously, this is all very complicated and I might just be being dense, but why was our government backing all of these subsidies and tax rebates? I mean, as a standalone question, it's intriguing. But also within the wider context of understanding how our system works, it has these implications. Because neoliberalism has been pretty firmly in the driving seat for a while now, and I mean, our current Conservative government is definitely neoliberal, and they want, as we're well aware at this point, as much of a free market as possible. And I thought that was the problem. So why are they backing all of these serious government interventions in the market? Because that's what this is. That's what subsidies and tax rebates are. It actually made me think of Guy Standing. We briefly talked to him about the commons in the last episode. And when I talked to him, he'd mentioned he had a new project. It wasn't the topic I was researching at the time, so I sort of nodded and promised I'd read the book and didn't. But suddenly certain phrases he'd said were echoing in my mind, ringing bells of recognition. So I read the book. And then I decided I wanted to go and talk to him. He was giving a talk at Conway Hall, so off I trotted to corner him beforehand. And we sat down in an empty lecture hall, so prepare yourself for echo. And I asked him. I thought our government was all for establishing and protecting a free market. So what's going on? 
It isn't a free market economy. And one of the ways that the governments make the situation even less like a free market economy is the use of subsidies and tax reliefs for special interests. In this country, I calculated that there are 1,190 forms of selective tax reliefs and subsidies. Oh, wow. That's not a free market. It's ridiculous. Done calculations with the Treasury's own statistics, so they're not my statistics, they're the Treasury's own statistics, that the top 209 of these 1,190 forms of tax relief, top 209 means that the Treasury has a foregone revenue of over 430 billion pounds oh. a year. Okay. Okay? Yeah. Now that money could easily pay for a basic income, a very big basic income for everybody in the country. Well over £430 billion of public money given to private companies in order to manipulate the market. Okay, so we don't have a free market. That's a lot of government intervention. I mean, Guy's right, that's not a free market at all. I mean, it's not necessarily a bad thing to not have a free market. The idea behind this kind of intervention is that it encourages companies to undertake economic activities and business ventures that the government sees as in the public's best interest. But this isn't benefiting us. Another stat QC Wolf stated in the court case was that as a direct consequence of government policy, the UK fossil fuel production between 2016 and 2050 will be nearly three billion barrels higher than it would have been otherwise. So if the all-intelligent, infallible market that they revere was actually left to decide, we'd be burning a lot less fossil fuels. We've actually given over 14 billion to UK-based oil and gas companies since the Paris Agreement. And it's not just the UK. I mean, the US has spent 10 times more on their fossil fuel companies than they did their education budget. It's kind of like we're controlling the market, but in this kamikaze death grip, higher emissions and less public money, which QC Wolf has me convinced is bizarre decision making. And all of that money could have been used to fund a just transition to renewable energy, which is where we need to go, or as Guy suggested in the last episode, to create a universal basic income, to set up a charter of the commons. But they didn't do that. They used it to influence the market in favour of fossil fuels. And what the book that you've mentioned does is identify the ways by which the powers that be, particularly the financial institutions, have constructed the most unfree market system ever conceived. And that I say without fear of contradiction, because if you look at what's happened, you can see that that is precisely the system that's been created. And it's vitally important for anybody going into politics today to identify what it is that has to be changed. And then if you say that it's a free market, when with nothing to do with being a free market, you're going to miss the target. Mm. You've got to identify the enemy that you want to transform. The most unfree market system ever created. That's a far cry from what I've been saying the problem is. Which means, really, we're not actually dealing with neoliberalism anymore. Not really. It's sort of morphed into a Frankenstein's neoliberalism, and not very many people have noticed. The question I'm left with is why? 
If the Conservatives have been largely aligned with neoliberalism for years and they're ideologically opposed to this intervention, and it seemingly has no benefit to us, why are they doing it? Part three, money, power and second jobs. Of course, yeah, it's a little bit of a mouthful, so I'll try to not uh, muck it up, but... I'm Michaela Herman. I'm a database researcher and reporter for DSmog, which is an environmental investigative journalism outlet. I'm talking with another Michaela, Michaela Herman. When thinking about how to describe her, I'm struck by the fact she looks a bit like me, if I'm honest. Roughly same age, both brunette, hair scraped back, black polo necks, business mode. She's a reporter for an organisation called DSmog. They basically investigate climate change and fossil fuel stuff. So you've got a company that says they're greener than green. DSmog investigate what they're actually doing and where their money is coming from. Yeah, there's a lot of number crunching and a lot of looking at like who's meeting with who and lobbying and efforts like that and just trying to get a sense of like who's influential in these spaces that, you know, you and I just as average people might not get to know about. You know, these are not things that are reported on TV news necessarily. You just sort of have to piece things together with sort of month-long investigations pretty regularly. I'm talking to her because I want to know, why is the government supporting the oil and gas industry in this way? Propping up the industry with public money if it's not really economically viable? We talked for a while about a lot of things North Sea related. And then, at about 40 minutes, she drops this in. Yeah, so we definitely have found at DSmog a couple different separate times that there have been meetings between fossil fuel companies I mean, all the time across the board. And that makes sense because they're stakeholders with government policies. And so they, of course, want to have input uh, into government policies. But we did find that I think several North Sea companies had donated about 400,000 pounds to the Conservative Party while the Conservative Party was considering how to shape the future of the North Sea. North Sea oil and gas companies donated 400,000 pounds to the Conservatives just whilst they were deliberating whether to issue new licences to those oil and gas companies. Huh. So while it was, you know, apparent to everybody outside government that the the government was considering what is the future of licensing going to look like up there, some campaigners were lobbying them to end licensing in the North Sea altogether. So there was sort of talk about, you know, what's the future of the North Sea going to be? Is there going to maybe be no more licenses up there? And then it turned out, no, we get this North Sea transition deal. And then it came out that they've gotten, you know, almost half a million pounds from people who are interested in continuing, you know, oil and gas exploration there. And so obviously we don't know what was spoken about in those meetings or, you know, if that money meant access to anything. You know, we don't have any evidence of that. But it just raises questions about money and access and influence. And, you know, not many people have access to half a million pounds to give to a political party for whatever reason, let alone when critical decisions are being made. I mean, Michaela was pretty cautious about how she said it, but there is limited delicacy to the fact itself. A big fat donation from oil and gas companies in the North Sea to the Conservative Party right before they make a decision about whether to grant new licences in the North Sea. I think we might have found our incentive. So I asked Michaela whether there were any other interesting money flows, and she mentioned a few Conservative MPs who have second jobs in the industry. 
And then there was also John Hayes, who recently, uh, I don't know if you would say he was sort of caught up in the second job scandal, but so he has, you know, said things about climate campaigners before and compared them to terrorists and sort of been one of these climate delaying figures. And then it came out that he'd received quite a lot of money for advising a fossil fuel company over the last few years. John Hayes has been an MP since 1997. He served as the energy minister in David Cameron's government and is pretty pro-oil, let's say. Anti-wind farms, there aren't slightly, and wants fracking back in full force. And when he wasn't busy guiding our energy policy, he was working a second job for BB Energy, which trades more than 33 million metric tonnes of oil each year. John lent his hand as a strategic advisor and was paid £50,000 a year, which becomes all the more a generous figure when you realise that that sum was for 11 days' work. It makes you wonder what else comes in the John Hayes employee package. Worth pointing out that he's always voted against climate change measures. And there's a lot of these second jobs. You have Alan Duncan, who kind of looks like Alan Titchmarsh's evil twin. As an MP, he's given some charming speeches about those without wealth being underachievers, something you can't accuse him of, toiling away as an MP and holding the position of non-executive chairman at Furaija Refinery, where he was paid £8,000 a month for a job that consisted of three weekends a year. He's also voted against nearly all climate change mitigation measures. You have to ask yourself, what are they really being paid for? It's not only second jobs. You also have a lot of personal donations coming in. Kwasi Kwarteng, the head of the OGA at the time, having accepted nearly £20,000 in personal donations from individuals in the oil and gas industry in one year. And as you keep looking, the list just seems to go on. I won't list all of them, but, well, okay, just quickly. From brief research, I'm not pretending this list is entirely extensive. For Conservatives that have received personal donations from individuals or companies in the fossil fuel industry, you have Priti Patel, Andrea Ledson, Penny Mordant, Mark Garnier, Robert Halfen, Brandon Lewis, Alistair Locke, Douglas Ross, Leo Doherty, Jeremy Hunt, Liam Fox, Simon Clark, David Morris, Andrew Percy, Kwasi Kwarteng, Liz Truss, Nadim Zahawi, that's a big one. He claimed for every individual paperclip in the expenses scandal, but received around one million from oil and gas companies. And then, of course, you have our new PM, Rishi Sunak, whose wife owns a meagre £600 million stake in the industry. I actually can't go on. There's a lot. In fact, over 43 members of the House of Lords have been found to have a significant stake in the fossil fuel industry. Now, for legal reasons, I'm not suggesting anyone was paid for their votes. It's all legitimate lobbying, all legitimate employment and investments. But it certainly does highlight a trend. Maybe this is what QCK meant when she said the benefits that the oil and gas industry brings to the UK are broader than just tax. And this isn't just a problem with a few dodgy Tories. It isn't just some dealings behind closed doors with a few bad apples. It's baked into the structure of government in the UK. It's formalised. It's part of the institution. There's a lot of things I found very surprising becoming an MP. I don't think I'll ever find it normal being called mom or having doors open for me. But some of it is unnerving as well. This is Zara Sultana. She's a Labour MP for Coventry South. She's young, she was elected around 25, Muslim and from a working class background. So she came to Parliament with a fresh perspective. And she's one of the only politicians to ever lodge this particular complaint. I didn't know big businesses sent gifts to MPs. Gifts that always seem to be accompanied by requests. The other week, Heathrow sent me a food hamper along with an ask, 
They wanted me to support their third runway, as if some shortbread biscuits would drown out the warnings of the climate emergency. This bothers her. She's even done an ironic YouTube-style unboxing video for the gifts she's been sent from large corporations. Hi, everyone. My name is Zara Sultana. Welcome to my parliamentary office. And today, we're going to do some exciting unboxing. The gifts she receives aren't massively consequential, but they typify a culture of gifting that Zara finds worrying. That we receive from Google and YouTube. These recordings are of her in the House of Commons, directing her complaints, calling this out clear as day to the Madam Chair. That takes guts. Google recently sent me a gift as well. It wasn't much, but it got me thinking about corporate lobbying. It reminded me that in 2018, Google avoided one and a half billion pounds in tax, and that in 2016, Google reached a deal with the government after dozens of meetings with ministers to secure an effective tax rate of just 3% on profits estimated to be more than seven billion pounds. There's something relevant to what Zara's talking about here, and it's called the Lobbying Act. It's a bill that was brought in to control the extent to which different groups can lobby the government about things, which sounds like a good thing. Except if you actually read it, you'll find out that it only restricts 5% of lobbyists. Trade unions representing workers and charities. They have a restricted amount that they can spend on lobbying. But corporations? Corporations can do what they like. Unfettered access and budgets. In fact, within the same time period... It's logged that corporations lobbied the government 1,537 times and trade unions 130 times. The unofficial name for the Lobbying Act is the Gagging Bill. Now, I might have missed it, but I don't think doctors or nurses, factory workers or cleaners in Coventry South were offered private meetings with ministers to create tailor-made sweetheart packages to reduce their taxes. But this is a premium service that's given to big business. And so it often seems to be one rule for billionaires and big business and another rule for everyone else. How did this happen? Well, it actually all goes back to my conversation with Wendy. Do you remember how I talked about the fact that neoliberals actively reduced the political sphere because they wanted to thin out democracy to protect the free market from pesky regulations and controls, you know, the kind of controls that people might vote for if, say, they wanted to protect the environment or reduce inequality. Well, they were only half successful in that goal. Sure, they managed to damage our democracy, but I think it's clear that the end result isn't a free market. I mean, Guy Standing was right. Somewhere along the way, we ended up with something like the opposite. By reducing the political sphere, neoliberalism made our political system incredibly vulnerable to a threat which they hadn't anticipated, but they helped create. Big capital and corporations. If you look at the 100 largest economies in the world today, 69 of them aren't countries, they're corporations. And that's in part due to the mammoth transfer of wealth from the public to the private sector over the last 40 years or so. It means that corporations dominate our global economy and our political systems, with political actors who seem to be only too happy to deepen their power as long as they share a little power in return. No wonder in the US, private and corporate funding for elections has increased more than 20-fold since the 70s. So political power still exists, it just doesn't really serve us first and foremost anymore. Which means it's less like a democracy and closer, really, to a plutocracy, a society ruled by the wealthy. 
but Guy calls it something else. He says that we're now in the age of rentier capitalism. And nowhere is this more clearly being demonstrated than the climate crisis. Put it this way, it's been very clearly stated by the UN and the International Energy Agency that our lives depend on no new oil and gas projects, on fossil fuel infrastructure being retired and the industry being dismantled. And yet, what's happening? The people who we depend on to start that process, the people who exist to represent our interests and well-being, are hopelessly compromised by a financial dependency on that very industry. And don't believe me? Ask Wendy. So I suppose... um Really, then, when we're talking about the fact that democracy, you know, that we're we're working within a plutocracy, I suppose you could say, do you think that there is a hope that our governing institutions will be able to distance themselves enough from the concerns of corporations in order to act on climate change? No, I, I just don't. I mean, that's not where it's going to come from. I mean, this is the irony, is that they're too imbricated. There's just no possibility, certainly in my country, but I don't think in the EU either, and I don't think in most other nations in the world. Can you say that leaders are independent enough of the largest economic entities on the planet, let alone from finance, that they could do what needs to be done? The upwelling, the demand, the insistence will have to come from below. It has to come from below. What is worth more, art or life? Is it worth more than food? Worth more than justice? Are you more concerned about the protection of a painting or the protection of our planet and people? What you just heard was someone from the protest group Just Stop Oil throwing a can of soup at Vincent van Gogh's painting, Sunflowers. In October 2022, they launched a month of civil disobedience and stunts to get the issue into news circulation, and they kind of haven't stopped since. They've climbed things, sat in front of things, and as you just heard, threw super things. And the newspapers repeatedly report how dangerous and ridiculous their methods are, claiming nobody supports them and doing everything they can to delegitimize who they are and what they stand for. They call them eco-zealots, orchestrating a campaign of chaos. And most of the time, the newspapers won't even say what they're protesting against. And this means that, generally, the court of public opinion has ruled against them, dismissing them as crazy hippies, at best seriously annoying, and at worst, dangerous idiots. And, like I said, I get it, I really do. But let's just go back and listen to Ed again from the beginning. What your audience need to understand is that we're being systematically lied to. The government has no intention of dealing with this crisis. They are under the behest of big business and corporate interests. And corporate media like yourselves uh, are are also uh, complicit with this. What did I call him? Reductive, childish, hysterical, unsympathetic. And yet his rantings turned out to be bang on the money. And you remember Lowry, who was so angry about the protests? What did she say on Good Morning? We live in a democracy, and it's not the right of one small group of people to tell everybody else how to live. Go through the democratic process. But Lowry, as we've seen, the democratic roots have been hopelessly weakened. Even taking the government to court doesn't work. Stop Cambo, the group represented by QC Wolf in the trial I followed, they lost their cause. The good news is that the Cambo oil field is on pause. Shell, who were the main company petitioning for Cambo's exploration, decided to pull out of the project. 
They said it was for economic reasons, but they did it right after a spate of protests and disruptions, and it's generally believed that they succumb to public pressure. In fact, industry website oilprice.com has noted, arguably the most prominent deterrent to supporting oil and gas investment in the North Sea is the size and organisational ability of the environmental activists in the region. So protest works. And if discontent grows in the wider public, that's even more powerful. When fossil fuel companies saw a massive spike in profits due to the war in Ukraine, it was public discontent that forced the government to introduce a windfall tax to get some of that money back to the public. So if you're wondering why groups like Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion are engaging in civil disobedience, well, it's not perfect, but it's certainly more effective than going the official route, which is probably why it's now in danger of being suppressed. In response to this spate of civil disobedience, the government has cracked down on our right to protest. They brought in a new bill, the Public Order Bill. It restricts our right to protest, increases penalties, criminalises certain activities, and extends the powers of the police. It's been decried by experts across the political spectrum as an outright assault on our democratic rights. So they're being shrunk even further. And the UK has now been warned by the NGO Human Rights Watch that it has a very short window to reverse some of its decisions before it joins the countries listed as human rights abusers rather than human rights protectors. Who does our government serve? People power versus corporate greed. Government and media complicity. That's the thing about cliches. They're always the victim of their own success. And before you know it, you can't even see how true they are anymore. You've been listening to The Water We Swim In. Next week, instead of just moving on, we're going to have a bonus episode exploring a little more into this topic first. But in the meantime, if you want to read more about Smog's work or Just Stop Oil or any of the amazing initiatives and movements to strengthen our democracy, head over to our website, waterweswimin.co.uk. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. We'd really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. Producing this episode was me, Tilly Robinson. Co-writing was Matthew Robinson. Mixing by Naked Productions. And original music by Drew McFarlane.